Welcome to Cheek by Giles podcast, not true, but useful. This is episode two, Space and Shakespeare. Hi, I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and in this podcast, I'll be interviewing director Declan Donnellan and designer Nick Ormerod, the artistic directors behind the theatre company Cheek by Jowl. This podcast is going to take you behind the curtain to find out more about the ideas that they find not true, but useful in their creative process. Together, we're going to be talking about the way that they think about space and Shakespeare. And today, I'm very pleased to have both Declan and Nick on the other end of the line. Hello, hello. Hello, Lucy. Hello, Lucy. There's been some great quarantine distractions available in the last few days because the Marley Theatre in Moscow has been live streaming some of your past productions with them. Declan, is it an odd experience to watch shows from your past? Yes, the Mali did one, which is the Winter's Tale, and um, the Theatre Confederation did three. It was extraordinary to see them, actually, because they're quite far enough in the past now. I, I, I was sort of overwhelmed, really, with how good the actors were. So, Nick, when you watch these productions from sometimes a couple of decades ago, do you notice the way that you've developed your approach or your interests over the years? It's very, very hard to say. Um, Obviously, you look at certain things, you think, oh, I wouldn't quite have done it like that. But um, on the whole, I think it's really hard to say. I think other people have to judge that. I think, yes, I think you've got to kind of respect the past and think that's how we did it. And, you know, I have done Macbeth once, twice in our lives, three times. Um, And each time you do it, it's different because there are different actors, it's a different space, different time. And um, it just comes out differently. And I've done Measure now twice and The Tempest twice. Um, and um, I quite like doing them again. It helps if they're in different language the other time because then you, you get a totally clean slate. You very rarely hang over an idea from one show to another. But then we very rarely hang over an idea from before the rehearsals into the rehearsal. So today we're going to focus on the way that you think about space when you stage your plays together, both in terms of what it means for the actors and how it influences your design. And later in the episode, we're going to use Measure for Measure as a test case. And I suspect we'll probably talk a bit about Macbeth as we go along. But let's start at the very beginning. Why is space so important to you? It's very difficult to explain what we mean by space. I can put it in this form. I can say that um, what happens when we die when we die, the space gets taken away from us. So the space is an enormous thing. So what's space got to do with acting? Everything. Um, and it's got to do with um, our whole existence. Human beings live in space. They've spent their lives dealing with the space. They are formed by the space. Everything. The character, Macbeth, for example, lives in a space, a changing space, from second to second. Each character has their own special space and it's very subjective. You look at a chair, perhaps your mother sat in that chair, that chair means something to you in your bedroom. The character deals with the space spend, and we as human beings spend our lives dealing with the space. Yeah, sometimes there's a criticism of other people who say, oh, you know, he's at the centre of the universe, he thinks he's at the centre of the universe. And of course, it's very annoying if somebody's self-obsessed like that. But unfortunately, we are at the centre of our own universes. We, we invent the world that we see. There is a reality, I'm sure, but we have no access to that reality other than through our imaginations. Nick and I are sitting, at, we're looking at the same microphone now, but we'll see a different microphones. We, we're, the microphone we see, we have to invent somehow in our heads. 
Um, one can't explain these things, but we can get used to these ideas and we can say things about the space, which is different from defining it. So how does the space influence the behaviour of a character, for example? Well, there would be no character if there were no space. And the thing is that in a mysterious way, we are not independent of the space. We only exist as part of this big binary. And that's the very hard thing to get your head around. That's a striking statement, that there's no character without the space to, around them. Mm. So let's unpack that a bit. How, for example, does the space define Macbeth in the scene we talked about last week, Act 1, Scene 7, when he leaves the dinner party in the next door room offstage to talk to the audience about why he wants to kill Duncan? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, we shouldn't in any way have the idea that space is something that merely afflicts Shakespearean characters. But, you know, I'm, I'm Nick and I are sort of hunched over a microphone and we're looking at your face and we're, you know, we've opened the laptop and we're, I'm trying to not make noise on the table. And I'm pinned in space. For Macbeth, there's a million different ways of doing it, but the space will be central to all of them. There is no world, there's no life beyond the space. The space is what gets taken away from us when we die, and death is what happens when the space gets taken away. Macbeth gets a feeling that he has to leave that table. You know, yes, we can interpret it and say it's because he feels suffocated, because there's no air in the room, because he can't, has to get away from the man he's murdering. He needs space to think, and he comes out and maybe doesn't want to speak to anybody, and maybe he sees us. And there are all sorts of stories that one might evolve um, in order for him to do that. But whatever solutions he comes up with, these will all be absolutely dependent on the space, and him allowing that space to come before he does. That is the important thing. So it's not I, it's not me and I spray a space around me. It's there is a space and I'm in it. I try to control that space. And so I, I imagine it to be all sorts of things other than it is. But um, I'm, it's, it's going to be there before me, during me and after me. And my perception of it will be continually changing. If we need to break it down into steps, we can say, it's a bit leaden, but if we run into difficulty, we can say that the, one of the shapes of life is, um, is that I'm in a space, I have an impulse to cross the threshold, to go to another space, to find something which turns out to be different from what I had expected. And that's the last one that gives us life, is the fact that it's a, a continual surprise. When we look at any space, we see it's just one long transition from one from one place to another. There ain't no state of a space. The space itself is is transitioning, and we are normally trying to keep up with that space that's changing much faster than is comfortable for us. You know, it's like you know we think <laughs> that the world's spinning too slowly. Actually, the world is spinning uncomfortably fast, and. In all of these plays, the events runs out of control, and they're, they're trying to slow things down. I always think it's rather sad to say to actors, you know, you must drive the play, because actually, no, the, the, the space, the thresholds, the predicament drives the action, and the actors are normal, uh, the characters are struggling to, to keep running with this thing that's running wildly out of so control. One way of looking at what's driving this character through the space is that there's a problem in one space, it drives him into another space, but the new space only keeps presenting him with more problems. That the character's journey through the scene is dealing with the problems that the space is serving up to him. That's exactly right, yes. The space is never what he wants it to be. The space um, 
keeps presenting new challenges. And we all think, oh, wait, if only, if, only the, if only the threshold changing would stop, if only the carousel would stop, then I can get on it, then I can deal with it. If only it just stops for it. But it doesn't. It just keeps going. And there we are. And that's what we do. And yes, he's continually dealing with the new things that he sees. So it sounds like the space is never static because the problem keeps changing all the time. I guess the longer he's out of dinner, the more he realises that he's going to be missed and it looks suspicious and the bigger his problem's getting. Mm. And every face that he speaks into the in the audience presents another source of discomfort, as if he's trying to persuade each one that the murder is a great idea. So the space is always changing, either serving up new problems or letting the existing ones grow. Yeah, and then his wife flies in and he looks through and he says, how now, what news? News, news. We've got the head of state next door. What well, I mean, even that's nonsense that he comes out to her. Like, what news? I mean, he, he she's going to kill him in there because their big plan is being screwed up. I think that's what that's how I would tend to look at it. There will be many, many different ways of doing it. But I'll tell you what can never be different, and that is they're continually dealing with a new situation and seeing something that's new. And that's irrespective of uh, interpretation. So really, one way of rehearsing the play is to think, like you said, it's a carousel of a space that's constantly, constantly, constantly putting the character in hot water. Yes. Or more, I think even better than the carousel, it's the idea that there's a, a bus running down a hill with no brakes and um, your whole family's on it or everyone you know is on and you're trying to jump on the bus to grab the wheel, to steer it. So... Um, the energy is always coming from the outside, never from inside. That's very important. It's not a dead situation, and we have to energize a dead situation. It's no, the situation is tumbling madly out of control, and I have to steer that energy. But the actor must believe that the energy is presented there by a disastrous situation. So, Nick, I've heard that part of your work as a designer in rehearsals is to help set up um, situations and etudes for the actors to help understand how the space is pressurised around the character. How would you do that for Macbeth, for example? Well, for that particular scene where Macbeth leaves the dinner, um, I would advise, and I'm sure Declan would agree, that it would be incredibly useful to set up the dinner and use the rest of the cast as the dinner party guests. So they get some, so the two of them get some strong sense of what the dinner is like. And I think on occasions we have had the cast I mean, we we always do actually do talking always off do stage. Yes, and we've actually set up the full dinner party off stage. So you can feel almost the pressure cooker heat of the other scene in the scene that's being played. There's a very natural tendency of actors to play the scene very much between with your partner. So it becomes a scene between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. It's in fact a scene between Lady Macbeth and Macbeth about what's happening in the next room. And it's very easy to forget that actually the energy from the scene, of the scene, is coming from the next room. I think this thing about the secondary space that Nick was talking about is so important. The danger is that the actor thinks that the scene is the scene, and it's not. The scene isn't just the scene. The scene is is also the pressure being put on it by the scene outside. So without the pressure of the other space, there's no point in the characters being here on stage in front of us. I think it's something that we're all bizarrely familiar with right now because we're all penned in at home under great pressure, feeling tremendously high stakes because 
the space outside our front doors is filled with a pandemic. So outside is exerting huge pressure on us. Exactly. If we jump to another scene of Macbeth after they've done the murder and he comes down the stairs having killed Duncan and we have a quite, well, very complex scene between, again, between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. But if you analyse that, Macbeth in particular, he never leaves the space where he's done the murder. The whole scene for him is about the space he's left, the horrible space where he's murdered Duncan. But it's very tempting for the actors to play what appears to be the important scene, which is between the two of them. Whereas in fact, the whole energy of the scene comes from what's happened upstairs. Great. So when we look at every scene, there's always going to be another space that we can't see the space that they've just left or the space they need to go to that's supercharging what's happening in front of our eyes. Absolutely. And that's true of every scene you choose to discuss. If you look at the three sisters, the space of the house that they're in is defined by um, the other space, which is the town, the small town where they live. At the end of the first act, one element of the town walks in, and that's Natasha. She walks in, and it turns out that she's going to marry into the family. So the external pressure of the town walks into the space and that pressure drives the whole play. And by the end of the play, um, the town in the form of Protopopov has actually taken over the house they live in and they've driven out of their own space into the garden outside the house. And in fact, all the way through the play, they're sort of caught between spaces. They're tethered to this house, which is not what it used to be. It's not as it was when their father was alive. It's full of his memory. And they're also constantly wanting to be somewhere else, to be in Moscow. They're trapped in an in-between space. They're caught between longing for what this space was and wanting to escape to another space. So they're trapped in a space they don't want to be in. Exactly. So, and the other space is, yes, exactly as, as you say, is what the space was like when the father was there and it was full of officers. And so there's, an, again, another imaginary space. So there was, the space is incredibly complicated for all of the, and different for all of the individual characters. Declan, one thing I once heard you tell an actor, which sounds definitely not true but useful, is that the character has no internal life and is only dealing with external circumstances. Yeah. So this seems in some ways very radical and in other ways extremely obvious. Can you explain what you meant? Um, I wouldn't like to say no internal life. I'm saying your internal life will be fine. You'll get masses of internal life. Just actually worry about dealing with the changing space and then you'll get as much internal life as you need. The important thing is not to consciously worry about your inner life. Um, because if you do, that will become a defense against you interacting with the outside world. And the problem with that is that's precisely what we all want to do, because the present moment is terrifying, as Beckett would make clear. I think I find it a really useful approach, because there's lots of ideas about acting and directing, which involve trying to summon internal emotions, which have always seemed to me as a director not particularly useful, Partly because, as we know, talking about motive can be quite treacherous, and we covered that in the last episode, but also because it becomes very quickly subjective and often quite cliched. But it's very practical to say that the character is in reaction to something outside themselves. Yeah, I'd say any direct tampering with your inner life, like I need to be sad here, I need to be this here, is wrong. Always it's a disaster. That's what I'd say. Let me come off the let me come off the fence. It's a disaster. And try and thinking in terms of your internal life 
is a disaster. Sometimes we'll say, oh, that actor's no good in, on screen because he's got no internal life. Well, I know what they mean, but if you actually look at the great screen performances, you'll see that the so-called internal life is, in fact, always somebody reacting to an impulse that's outside them, that there's it's a symbiosis between themselves and something from the outside. If you're astute you'll just worry about the external um, impulse. You'll start, you'll just worry about the external um, space, the, the thresholds or whatever. You'll worry about those structures. Um, if you think, well, no, you know, I need to keep a balance. It's a bit of me and a bit of it. You know, it's a bit of the space outside and a bit of me inside. Come on, let's be fair now. Come on, fair, fair. Um, then you'll probably have a disaster because the internal bit is going to take you over. And what you really need to do is to empty yourself as much as you can to seeing all the different things that the character sees. Now, you have to, of course, study the mask before you spin the mask. And you have to see that the world that the Macbeth see is very different from the world that the actor sees. So, for example, the Macbeths, the Mac in different ways, um, have fantasies about Duncan. They have to kill him. There's only one motive, and the motive is to avoid the bad feeling. That's our motive. And they get a bad feeling when they think about Duncan, Duncan going on living. They get a bad feeling when they think of them not seizing this opportunity, that he's in the house that night. They get a bad feeling. They turn up their one great opportunity to become king and queen. They get a bad feeling when they think they're going to be forever losers. They think they're going to kill Duncan, and that's going to be a disaster for their eternal souls and they get a bad feeling about that so they're actually ricocheting from one bad feeling to another feeling that's the motive they have i've often heard you talk to actors about the idea that feelings can actually take on clothes and exist outside the character in the space rather than inside them exactly a yes. bit like i suppose in the cherry orchard where the presence of this dead child grisha is everywhere and his memories embedded in the furniture in the walls in the trees outside and we could talk about the feeling of grief the characters carry inside them, or we could more practically work on them constantly, constantly, constantly having to encounter objects and spaces which are completely invested with Grisha. So the grief becomes part of the physical, external space. It's like, say there's a couple and they're having a problem and one's doing the washing up one night and says, Don't, I, I, I really think you know, we, we ought to talk a little bit about relationship. I'm not sure that it's quite working out the way I hoped it would, and I, I'm beginning to think um, that maybe we need some time apart. And then, bit by bit, um, I said, well, you know, do you think we maybe think about a divorce? But very soon, something strange happens between people. That it's no, it's no longer just the two of them. The divorce or the separation or whatever starts to take flesh onto itself, and it becomes like a third person. But we tend to um, incarnate. Um, ideas after a while that we what incorporate is another word to give flesh to something so just like in Macbeth as soon as they imagine the possibility of the murder it becomes this horrible looming presence in the castle with them it's sitting next to Duncan at that awful dinner party so of course Macbeth he feels he needs to escape outside to talk to us in that scene exactly it's now in the space and from now on everything that they do is going to be in relation to that so they no longer have the freedom of what I want and what you want. It's like, what does it want? What does the murder want? And it starts to exert its own gravitational pull. I think it would be useful at this point for us to go back to another important word that you use, which is threshold. 
So you seem to use it both when you talk about crossing from one space into another, but also when the space changes in front of the character's very eyes and they have to cross into a new predicament in the space. These things happen so quickly, you see. The, the more we examine the space, the more we look into the pixels that makes up the photo, the more we realise that the space is actually one endlessly changing threshold. I think it's really important to use the word space to begin with because it's not just a generalised glob of goo experience. It's not like the whole, the whole thing's moving anyway. Why bother to talk about it? The whole thing's moving anyway in that we do need to talk about it because it's absolutely vital that we understand that it changes. So I would say that you can, if you really slow things down, what happens at every moment that we're alive really is that I'm in a space. I have a, an impulse to cross a threshold to go into another space which is different from what I had expected. That's the most important one. So the idea that there's always an expectation that's always challenged, denied, changed, maybe pleasantly, maybe not, but that it's that moment of surprise that is actually the moment of life. And so what we're trying to do when we set up rehearsals is create anchors that we can create as many surprises for the character as possible. So setting up the space is crucial to getting going with the play. Well, I think what we do in rehearsal is we set up a skeleton, but the skeleton isn't the living thing. And we set up a skeleton, which is very often like the skeleton of um, a life form, like a lobster, in which we have only the external skeleton, not an internal skeleton like in a mammal. So it's something that holds us um, and then we are going to allow flesh to grow within it. So we do need a structure of space and some sense of big thresholds and so on. But in the end of the day, yeah, the space is, is always changing. And so, Nick, in your work with the design, does that preoccupy you a lot, setting up thresholds, creating a space that's full of uh, this lobster skeleton that we can grow life in? Well, no, in, in fact, it's my preoccupation to make sure that the space is free enough for them to be able to imagine this space. Um, and doesn't constrict them. So if I were to provide all those things, like the staircase they've come down, like the door, the second bedroom, I think I would have strangled the play because it would have made it completely concrete. And they need to imagine those spaces. I don't need to provide them, thankfully. I think I would um, actually destroy the play by its over-designing over it. But the actors do have to imagine concrete things. Um, and they absolutely have to imagine they've been somewhere and that they're going somewhere else. So that seems to be a really useful set of offers for an actor in a rehearsal process, that they're dealing with this rapidly changing space. So the character comes into view, propelled by the pressure from the space that they've left, only to encounter a new space which is not what they were expecting, teeming with thresholds and surprises and invested fears and ideas that have taken on flesh. So they basically go through a series of encounters with things outside of themselves. They only have to deal with the space and not with worrying if they're feeling enough or not feeling the right thing. I have to say that I do feel a bit sick, though, at the prospect of saying, um, making the actor in any way feel that they're responsible for all of these things. I think it's much, much better if the actor thinks that all of these things are available to the actor as opposed to something that they must do. Um, and it's just a way of thinking but what I'd like to remove from the actor's shoulders is the responsibility of um, creating internal feelings, creating a character.
In this part of today's episode, we're going to have a chat about Shakespeare's Measure for Measure and how the space was important in your work on it. For all our listeners, Declan and Nick's Russian language production is freely available until the 25th of May on the Cheek by Jell YouTube channel with English subtitles, so you can see it for yourself. In fact, the music in this podcast was composed by Pavla Kimkin for this production. I would recommend checking it out. It's an amazing show. So, Nick, could you describe your design for this production and tell us about the way you were thinking about space as you went about it? Well, what you will see is an abstract space with very few elements, in fact, five red boxes. And that came about um, as part of our process, which we call in the woods, which is a week's, 10 days preparation in advance with the actors, where they showed us etudes, um, as it were, improvisations about the different worlds in the play. And they're really quite complex, these worlds. Um, there's the world of the government, of which Angelo and the Duke are part of. There's the world of the prison. And there's the world of the underworld of the city. There's the world of the city itself and the world of the convent that Isabella leaves. And and then there's the world of the prison where Claudia, the brother, is imprisoned. And we worked on these different worlds and we tried to find a space that could accommodate all of them. And we ended up with this abstract space with really only one element, which is the table, which is used as a sort of symbol of power for the government and a symbol of power for the provost who runs the prison. And it suggests a prison cell when Claudio meets Isabella in the prison. And our way in was to take the play as really a psychological journey for the, of the Duke who begins in an uncomfortable place because he can't tolerate being the Duke. And he gives up and hands over power to Angelo, his deputy, and then watches the, almost all the proceedings of what happens. So it's, we treated it as his sort of psychological journey, almost like a dream. And in fact, we've been talking about thresholds, but the way we approached it was to, in fact, to remove all the thresholds, more like a dream. So we jump from space to pace, and the spaces are presented to him, like um, Angelo and Isabella, without them crossing a threshold, ironically. Though this, we kind of discovered quite late on in the process, how in fact actors come on stage, because we present the whole company almost as a personification of, his, of the Duke's personality. And there are different elements. Barnardine, who he releases at the end of the play, is kind of representative of his sort of dark side and Isabella of his more spiritual side. So, And the, the body of actors represents kind of himself, different parts of himself. And to begin with, they mirror him, which suggests that they are him. They're, in fact, on stage throughout watching. And then they create these images for him. And so we follow his... Um, his psychological progress through an abstract space. So it sounds like you set about building a space which catalyzed his dreamlike progress through the play rather than building a space which specifically illustrated a dream. Yes, it's exactly. I think it, it allows all those elements to exist and hopefully vividly because the actors, of course, are incredibly expressive and hopefully the ideas have sparked off 
in the imagination of the audience. It's just important for anybody listening to this to not to think that Nick and I have this conversation beforehand, that we know what we're doing. And so, yes, it's all about the dissolution of thresholds, but I think that's something that we see now looking back on it. I don't think we ever had a conversation about we no. want to dissolve thresholds. So we would not think about it in this explanatory way. So in a way, you can take a note from acting, perhaps, from what we're doing now, which is, I think, a motive is our way of explaining what we have done, not of what we are going to do. And that's why it's very, very misleading asking an actor, you know, what your motive is, because it's dodgy. And we don't actually, I hope, I don't know if Nigel agree with me, but we don't actually discuss it um, in, in, in that way at all. We work very instinctively together. Yes, and I remember the, the moment where we discovered that moment of Aeschylus being delivered as a character yeah. by the chorus was mm. very pragmatic. It was really a matter of solving how to get the actor on stage as a character. And that, but it, it released that idea, which subsequently we can interpret as dissolving thresholds, which sounds very good, but I mean, it was actually quite a practical process of, and pragmatic process of doing, doing the play. That's one of the things I really admire about your designs, this less is more approach. They often have a stark simplicity with just a, a few elements which fire up the space, like providing a climbing frame for the actor's imagination rather than strictly illustrating an image. So do you deliberately set out to only include the few elements you really need for the scene? Or do you find yourself taking stuff away as you go? Well, I think part of the origin of our, our, our work is that we have developed from touring, and which requires simplicity and lightweight, and we started very early on, you know, with virtually nothing in a small van and just the actors. I mean, I think you said the word, actually, it's need. And I think in theatre, need is a very good coordinate because I don't like to think of theatre designers as there's a horrible French word of decorateur, of anything that is actually decorative. And it takes quite a lot of mental discipline to analyse what is decorative and to remove it, frankly, and to make sure that everything on stage is actually needed. And if you analyse the great production any production, you will find that what is there is rooted in, in need, even the most spectacular musicals. To begin with, I'd gone into rehearsal with an idea that I'd, I'd quite like to do it in a very real way, and to make the government offices very real and to have a very kind of, um, you know, proper doors and everything. And then Nick sort of patiently pointed out that that um, would not be um, sufficiently fluent for, uh, for the easy passage from one scene to another. And that's how we ended up with it but um i mean i do i mean i think he's got a slightly different version of this from me but you know I, he did present me with the five boxes and the uh, desk and the, the chair <laughs> and i it's and it worked and i we worked with it together but it was um it was kind of from nick's subconscious you know he couldn't explain it and i couldn't explain it and you know it was kind of character building looking at it In this part of today's episode, we're going to be answering some questions which the listeners have asked for both of you. And one listener wants to know that with the new live stream and live captures that are going out in isolation from various theatres, has it changed the idea of what the space means to you now this online performance context has developed? No, I don't think so. I've, I've noticed um, 
it's it's another space, the live stream. But then we see a lot of the great stories in the world. A lot of the great stories in the world are it's the spectacle of somebody telling a story. So somebody starts by telling a story to somebody else, and that becomes the you know it's like the Mahabharata. You know, somebody's telling someone else the story, and you're watching the spectacle of that story being told. Um, so it's not the <laughs> grand historical precedents for eavesdropping on a story that somebody else is being told. And I think that's what happens in the live stream that you're you're watching actors performing to a living audience and you're going to um, be the Oedipal third. It'll be different, but it doesn't necessarily need to be worse. So we also have a question from a listener who'd love to hear about your experience or your advice about adapting novels for the stage, given that one of your very early productions was an adaptation of Vanity Fair. Well, the wonderful thing about the novels we have chosen to adapt is that they almost adapt themselves in that you can take the language of the novelist and turn it to your advantage that you actually in both cases in Vanity Fair and Great Expectations which we did for the Royal Shakespeare Company we simply structured it and used the voice of the novelist which is incredibly powerful in Thackeray in fact I can't imagine doing his work particularly Vanity Fair without using his voice because it's like gives whole layers of irony and humor And the same with Dickens, really. Dickens' own voice is unbelievably distinctive and energetic and gives power um, which you you cannot replace by straight character dialogue, I think. So I'm afraid to say (laughs) the skills involved in adapting were more to do with scissors and paste. That's what it was about for us. And finally, we've got lots of questions coming up about the new book and when it's coming out. Can you tell us more about that? We've 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 changed since we've done um, you know in, in the twenty one years since the action of the Tiger Cap. The world's changed. Everything's changed. So we see things in a somewhat different way. But we can't explain. If you say how is it different, we can't really say how it's different. It's just there are certain words we use less and certain other words that we use more. All the words are imperfect. Um, and it's um, there's a sort of way of looking at things. The reason I'm having a difficulty in, in writing the book is that the matrix thing that we talk about in the action and the target, you know, you can't really isolate um, one of the spider's legs from another. Each of the difficulties are mutually um, affect each other. I actually use the, other, the word quarantine. You can't quarantine one of the problems from another. It's become a bit too fashionable at the moment. But that's got even worse in the second book. In other words, it's so incredibly difficult to, f- to find a coherent step-by-step path. And um, But it, it would be dishonest maybe of me to try and impose that on it because it's not that sort of thing. It's not even like a circle. It's more like a sphere. Um, and it's hard to... Um, extrapolate a a step-by-step, page-by-page process from it. Nevertheless, that's what we're going to try to do. Fantastic. Um, Well, we are looking forward to Declan's spherical book. Before then, you're going to get spherical Declan, because I I, I can't tell you how much I'm eating. I can't tell you how little I'm exercising. So yeah, I'm actually going to be the shape of my book. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, on that note, that's where we're going to end for today. Thank you very much both to Declan and Nick. And uh, everybody stay safe and well in this next week of quarantine. Thank you for listening to episode two of Cheek by Jell's podcast, Not True, But Useful. If you have any questions for Declan and Nick, contact us on social media with links to our profiles in the podcast notes. We'll answer as many of your questions as we can in the next episode. 
And tune in next week when Declan and Nick will be talking about the way they collaborate together as director and designer. In the meantime, don't forget that their production of Measure for Measure is available on the YouTube channel until the 25th of May 2020. And the text of all the scenes we've been talking about today and links to Cheek by Jell production images, videos and archive materials can also be found in the podcast notes if you want to find out more. I've been your host Lucy Dawkins and the music you're hearing was composed by Pavla Kimkin. Until next week. <laughs>